Okay, what's up, everybody? It is, let's see, Wednesday, the 14th of February, 2018, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst. What am I saying? Jesus Christ, I can't even keep my days and my podcast straight. It's the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat here on MMAfighting.com. Apologies, I couldn't even get the start of this correct. Uh, we'll go for about, ooh, let's say, 82 minutes or so, talking about the latest and greatest of mixed martial arts and maybe a few other topics as well. Best place to get your questions in is going to be where this window is embedded in a post on MMA Fighting, which should be at the top of the site right now. Comments that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. It is Valentine's Day, so I don't know what you donkeys are doing for your Valentine's, your Amorcitos. I uh, hope you've got something planned. Hope you're not having to resort to going to the graveyard to steal flowers, which I'm sure some of you will. Um, or that you're taking the misses out. Or maybe you're not doing anything. Maybe you're going to get drunk alone. Don't think that that's inappropriate because it's not. Just so long as, um, well, you don't harm anybody else, I suppose. I don't know where I'm going with this. Okay. Uh, let's see. There's Tyron Woodley versus Dana White out there as topics. There's UFC 221, which just passed. There's UFC Austin, which is not Saturday, but Sunday. There's Bellator 194, which is Friday. There's really a lot to get to. So without further ado, let's get to it, shall we? Let me thank Danny for helping out. There we are. Okay. Let's see. First up. <laughs> is this real? Uh, okay. Uh, what is your problem with dudes who sit when they... I'm going to use his... Not use his words, urinate. I think this is in reference to my Justin Timberlake opinions. When you're uh, home after you've had the bender to end all benders, sitting down when you urinate is a useful tool in the middle of the night. This is what my life has been reduced to, by the way. I've brought this on myself. So that way you don't make a mess out of the floor or the <laughs> But also when you're hungover and you can barely see, the same rules apply. I don't see how this makes someone less manly. Also, if you have a... Well, I can't read the last part. Uh, I just don't get all the hate, Luke. I really don't. This is a funny little way to start this. Um, like I said, I have brought this shame and... I don't know. What do you want to call this? Prurient content on myself. Um, I suppose. Toilet humor. It's what I've been reduced to, but it's no one's fault but my own, really. Uh, this is in reference to the Justin Timberlake opinion if you didn't see it last week or two weeks ago whenever it was after the super bowl where i just could not believe the number of dudes out there who claim to be even remotely um you know self-sustaining capable reasonably laudable contributing members of their own society and claim to like him what a total abdication of your responsibility not really as a man but as a person you know if the kind of thing you're into is listening to him um, there's no other way to justify that other than to also say you're into like Gilmore girls binges on, you know, whatever Netflix or something, which, it, which is fine, but just admit that's what you're into because those are connected. Um, if you actually like real artists who write their own things, which apparently is a novel concept, uh, and a controversial one, which I was not aware of, well, then you don't, you don't do those sorts of things. Um, and I know people are like, why are you always hating? Like, first of all, there's nothing wrong with hating, by the way. I mean, in and of itself, it's a fine exercise. And I like hating on Justin Timberlake and a lot of other things because I'm good at it. That's why. All right. Shamelessly line cutting. 
What are the reasons people in the media are writing such glowing articles about Kim Jo Young? She isn't a puppet head. She has actual power in North Korea and is without question one of the most evil people in the world. I ask you as a left winger in the media that acknowledges that both sides have flaws. Is it native optimism, ignorance, or just flat out apathy of the problems affecting North Korea? I think it's twofold. One, the media is absolutely doing themselves a disgraceful non-service in the way they have treated her. I completely agree. I found it uh, nauseating, to be quite honest, that they have treated her this way. The only partial defense, such as you can make one, is that it's not merely that the Western media has some sort of... Uh, fondness for her it is that the south korean people appear to be enamored with her as well not en enamored is a strong word fascinated captivated not quite in love exactly but can't take their eyes off them kind of a situation and so there is something to be said about she has she sort of took the center stage in this whole thing um uh that there there, there is something worthy of being acknowledged but really what they've done and nobody finds Trump. I mean, I wouldn't hire Trump to be my dog catcher in my neighborhood. I find him so utterly incompetent. However, there is no denying that the amount of media coverage and the tenor of the media coverage is really just a way to poke a stick in, you know, Trump slash Mike Pence's eye by siding with this you know, cruel, evil, despicable creature. Uh, it is. It has been. It has been horrible to witness that. I, I will firmly admit. And I and that's why I've sort of tuned out basically. Not not the Winter Olympics altogether, but uh, that story. Like I'm not I'm not in any way enamored or fascinated by her at all. Not even a little bit. The fact that she wears modest amounts of makeup or has a smirk or whatever. If the people in South Korea have a different relationship with her, then it's something that I don't have any comment about. But I don't know why, as an American, I'm supposed to give give an F. To be quite honest, um, uh, and this sort of you know, whitewashing of her by turning this, you know, good faith ambassadorship thing she's doing at the Olympics as a way to forget her unspeakable crimes is repulsive, to put it mildly. Um, okay. Parrying in MMA. Bop, bop. Hi, Luke. Your Monday morning analyst this week was amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate I'm glad somebody liked it. Uh, actually, it actually got a lot of good reviews about it. I was very th thank you to everybody who sent a nice note about it. By the way, I really appreciate that. Definitely my favorite you've ever done, and educational. So that thank you for that. Well, thank you guys for watching. I appreciate that. In relation to it, do you think parrying strikes is an underused tool in MMA? Would you consider it easier to improve at parrying compared to head movement, as it appears only extremely elite fighters are able to drop hands and dodge shots using only head movement? What other fighters have you noticed use parrying? As, an, as effectively as Romero. Thank you for all your content from Ireland. Well, thank you for watching the Monday Morning Analyst. I, like I said, I got a lot of, I got a lot of, uh, people sent a lot of nice notes about it, which I'm very, very thankful for. Um, people like the new format, it seems, now that we've gotten used to it. So I'm very happy about that as well. The parrying question is an interesting one. A um, couple guys who stand out to me who use parrying. Now, Romero's different in a lot of ways because he, he almost like relies on parrying. And he does blocking too, of course. You saw he would block a kick and then parry a shot. So he's a little bit different, but here's my point. like, Look at the way Romero strikes, as I mentioned. Part of the reason why he's able to conserve energy and block a lot of shots is not merely because he's good at parrying, although that is true. He's not trying to parry and then do something else. He's just, 
it's almost like you're doing a drill with a partner. Like, I'm going to strike. I'm going to try and find openings. I'm not going to land anything super heavy. Some jabs, some crosses, and some hooks. But that's about it. And I want, and I'll, you know, I'll throw a head kick, but um, not too heavy. I want you to block, and I want you to parry. Okay, ready? Go. And then in the gym, have the scenario play out like that. And that's almost how Romero treats it, where he's just blocking and parrying. He's not doing anything else. He's always mindful of his distance, right? Even if he's approaching, he's still kind of mindful about you know, where he can go and what he wants to do. So he does it a lot more and he's able to really concentrate on it because he's not trying to parry and then throw. He's not trying to parry and then double, typically. He's just he's just involved in that exercise. So he does a lot more of it and it makes him look a lot better. Other people use parrying merely as an in, you know a stop along the way to something else. Paul Felder has good parries. Um, Tyron Woodley, believe it or not, has some good parries. I know some people don't want to give him credit, but he does. Uh, Frankie Edgar has some good parries. I'm trying to think who has uh, John Jones occasionally will have a good parry. Uh, they, again, they don't use it nearly the same way, either in type or volume, as Yoel Romero might. But they, like when they do, uh, uh, Dwayne Ludwig used to have some good parries. But uh, I, I, I don't know which is harder. I don't nearly have enough. I don't have anything even approximating enough experience, even in the gym. To answer the question about what's easier to do, parrying or head movement, my hunch in talking to people who've actually done a lot of it is that head movement's harder. It's just a lot harder because you're on the move and you're trying not to have a stationary head, right? So you're already moving and then the shot comes through and you're slipping off to the side, right? And remember, a good slip, it's not well, – I see a lot of defense in the UFC. Here's another thing I really noticed about guys. Striking has gotten a lot better, but there's still so many things that could be tightened up. Um, good head movement when you're slipping a shot like this, one of the key things that any good boxing trainer will tell you is it's not this. You're not getting off at an angle, right, super far away. It's just slight. It's just slight. You're just slightly getting out of the way, right? That's what you're doing with a, with head movement because you don't want to, A, expend a ton of energy. That's taxing. Two, you don't want to get so far out of position that it takes a long time to get back to position. You want to get just out of the way and come back, just out of the way and come back. You want to be right there. An economy of motion is what you're trying to do. And to time that and to get out of the way and then bring it back, it's very, very hard to do. It's very hard to do. Um, it just takes a ton of practice. It takes a lot of natural skill. It just takes a good sense of timing. And I think parrying, especially in the way Yoel Romero does it, where he's kind of outside punching distance already, and he's not trying to counter, just block, 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 parry. That's a little bit more doable. It's more, it's way more doable. It's just a really effective thing for him that a lot of not, a lot of other guys don't want to do. They don't want to take big portions of a round off and then explode on later later on down the line. They want to be constantly working on their offense. Romero doesn't care about that. Doesn't care about that at all. So I'll wait till the last 30 seconds or the first 30 seconds or whatever 30 seconds I want to pick, I'll just pick that. Um, so I think head head movement's probably a lot harder, to be quite honest. But uh, Romero's use of the parry is quite interesting, nevertheless. Follow-up question about the Monday Morning Analyst. Uh, Luke, you mentioned how Rockhold needed to wrestle Romero. Right. Do you think he should have been looking to try to take him down or just to clinch him to wear him out? What do you think is the best approach to wrestling Romero? So you don't end up getting need in the face. Uh, as was said, excellent job on the Monday with the break. And well, thank you very much on this. I really appreciate you guys um, liking that. So that's an interesting question. Here's what I would say. I would say a uh, not a heavy level change. Um, you know, Chris Weidman did a really heavy level change. I think he was trying to really get in on a leg, maybe like a sweep single, which is like a single leg. Rather than getting there and running the pipe, you sort of 
you sort of line up on the leg and then literally like come around to the side. It's so sort of a safer way of shooting, kind of depending how you do it. I, I'm not, and you got time doing it. By the way, he was he faked the level changed and then he went and, and and did it. So he got time that way. I mean, go back and watch the Tim Kennedy fight. Now that's a different Yoel Romero than it is today. But what you see Tim is sort of like a modest level change. You know, he's not going to a knee pound or something where the knee hits the ground. They as they shoot through. He's not doing any of that. He kind of just tries to clinch. And maybe if once you're in the clinch, then you can dive even further, maybe try to push him back to the fence. But you're trying to make Romero drop his hips, un fight for underhooks, and separate. Work. Work. You know, that's what you really want. You're just trying to get him to work. If you can get on top of Romero, that's great. Um, and that's going to be taxing on you too. But the chances are, if you're an elite middleweight, you're going to bet on your cardio versus his. The point being is, even if you say, well, I don't want him to rest. I don't want to wrestle this guy because I don't trust my ability to effectively get in on the inside without getting clobbered. Okay, fine. But my point about Rockhold's strategy was just working on the outside like that, especially for a guy who can just block all the time, you're not wearing him out. You're not wearing him out. He's able to pick his spots basically wherever he wants. You know, if you hit a guy, not even just to the gut, but to the face, you can drain him. You can drain him that way. He wasn't being drained. He was just blocking everything and just, just waiting, 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 waiting for you to make a bad mistake with how you're circling, pushing into you, double jab, pop, and that was it. And that was it. So my point is the um, fights where he's lost, the Feijal fight I think is just sort of like this non-factor. But in the fight that he lost with Whitaker, it was so much wrestling, he just couldn't do much more past the second, you know, third round really. Uh, and then, of course, in the in the Tim Kennedy fight, Tim Kennedy had that novel thing where he grabbed his hand and wouldn't let go because he must have insane grip and was punching with the other one. But before all that, and he was getting pieced up a little bit, before all that, he was wrestling him. So by the time that third round came around, you could say, well, Romero still knocked him out. Okay, fine. But that dude was clearly, clearly distressed by the amount of work he had to do. I just don't see how you can beat a guy who will block your shots and then pick his spaces. you got to get that guy working. And it seems to me the best way to do that is to bet on your cardio against his and find some unique entries. The clinch is fine here if you're getting pieced up because he's swinging wildly everywhere direction. And you bring him in close so you can limit the amount of damage. And you can maybe kind of look over to the side and see which way he's throwing a little bit and then push off. Right? That's sort of like a, a last-ditch effort. One of the points I made was he what did he try to do? As Romero tried to come in, he tried to catch him with the check hook. But he wound it up from his hip like a Tim Tebow throw. Right, you could just look at Tim Tebow's mechanics. Tim Tebow would like drop his hand by his waist and then come out around on top and then throw it. And of course, you know, you, you got to get that ball out in the NFL. It has to be quick. You know, three step drop, bang, bang, bang. Look off a receiver, throw. That's what you have to do. If you get this huge wind up, you know, it's a question about how much air you can put under it and how quickly you can deliver to um, the receiver, the you know, designated receiver, based on their route and timing. And so uh, Rockwell had this huge, long windup, and it just took him forever to get there. And he didn't time it until after the, Romero had launched his second of the two jabs. He didn't catch it right in the middle when you're, of the two when you're supposed to. You have to be you know, a quick shot, right? Kind of like a slip. Everything in boxing is quick. It's, it's a slip. It's a quick shot, right? It's a, you know, it's a, it's a short uppercut. Um, he didn't really get that in there. And so, so to me, it's, uh, it was just – I'm not saying that – wrestling is the only answer and i'm not saying that the clinch uh, didn't have its perils um i'm just saying the way in which he went about it where he was trying to you know meet fire with fire but doing it off off timing it didn't do him any favors in the end
Someone says, um, the LT cast, which is something I do on my personal YouTube channel, like during an event, they like it. Uh, like the recaps, but the exuberant reactions to Rockhold getting starched are an exciting side we usually don't get to see. Yes. And you get to see how I normally watch fights too, which is alone. Solito. All right. Let's see. Uh, your upcoming projects. Look, I saw you mentioned on Facebook that you have a lot of things you've been working on. God, isn't that not the... I've been getting run ragged. Um, in the coming near future, is there anything you can share about any of these projects at this time? I told a little bit about it on my um, Twitch stream. If you want to go check that out, or I think episode two of the LT cast, you can go look at that. I don't really want to get into too many details here because one of the lessons about this is if you tease something out before it's ready... It's just an endless stream of questions about it after the fact. I'm just going to wait. Um, but yes, yeah, suffice to say that there are a number of things that I'm very looking, very much looking forward to sharing with you, including my PC tower is scheduled to arrive. What today is the 14th? So Friday, my PC tower is now. Someone has to be here to sign for it. I'm not sure if I'm going to be here to sign for it. I'm a little bit worried about that. But yes, this the monster computer that I ordered that is going to be essentially the main engine of all live streaming creativity going forward. That will be here on Friday. So I still have to set some things up. I got to put the capture card in. I got to. I haven't used the PC in a year, so I got to work my way around it a little bit. I got to get VMix. There's a lot I got to do, but um, but that will be here Friday. We actually, you can't quite see it, but we installed a wall here in my upstairs. On the other side of it is where I'm going to be living, and then we're going to put all this downstairs in the current bedroom, which will become uh, a studio. So I got a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. All right. Rockhold versus, and there's more than just that, too. By the way. It's not merely what's happening in the home. There's actually some other things I'm trying to get off the ground, too. Um, but stay ready is what I'll say, because that's what I'm doing. Okay, Rockhold versus The Mauler. The fight to make. Gustafson has shown vulnerability to head kicks in the Jones fight and to ground attacks from Phil Davis and Anthony Johnson. Phil Davis fight that was very early in his UFC career. Two strong suits of Rockhold's game. Or will Gus just back him behind the two black lines for a KO as he did to Jimmy Manoa? How bad is the size discrepancy? Rockhold once talked about a heavyweight fight with Verdum. Well, Luke Rockhold, in terms of height and frame, is big. He's not Verdum big, but he's big. You, you, you see him in public, and you, this, is a, this is clearly a larger person. Um, whatever that means for you, as, as a large person, I you know, you see another person of a certain size and um, you, you group them a little bit separately. He, he's a big guy. And so the question is, how would being a little bit bigger to be able to handle the weight discrepancies against um, various other light heavyweights, how would that change his game? Uh, how would it change his ability to have cardio? How would it change, like, what kind of strength would he reasonably have against them? Because he's fighting out their big middleweights. You know, Chris Weidman's a big middleweight. Yoel Romero's a big middleweight. Um, and of course he lost against Romero, but I'm just saying he's not fighting weak, small guys. Uh, he's fighting larger humans as well. So I, point being is I, I just don't like his chances up there. I really don't. I don't like that move for him. You know, I was going through the top 10 at middleweight. If you look at like six to 10, and there's a debate to be had about this, but if you look at like six to 10, you say to yourself, yeah, I still like rock cold against those guys. You know, without a lot of controversy. You never know, right? But, okay. And then, um, 
you look at like five to one and the picture gets a lot more. The point being is he still seems to me like a top five talent. And I realize that light heavyweight is wide open and maybe he can get some fights up there and some interesting wins and change the whole narrative about his career at this point. I wouldn't rule that out, but it's not like he's fallen on hard times to the point where he's collapsed as a middleweight contender. I mean, I don't, I don't know what, if he's ever going to get a title shot again, but in that division, can you really rule it out? Um, so, and then you just look at it and everyone's like, oh, Luke Rockwell has a glass chin. I, I don't believe that. Do you guys really believe that those two shots he took from Romero that anybody would live to tell about it? I, I have a hard time believing that. Yo, Romero is a genetic freak. Um, and you could say, what about the Bisping shot? But the Bisping shot he didn't really see and it landed on the tip of the chin. I mean... You know, do I think he has the best chin I've ever seen? No, but I mentioned this before. I don't want to pick on the guy, but it's just such a clear example of somebody who just guys when they get weeded out as they rise to the ranks of MMA, you know, they they show better cardio, they show better fighting instincts, they show better toughness, and the ones who don't slow, slowly get weeded out, right, or just never really ascend um, enough. But part of that is the ability to take damage, either mental toughness or um, uh, just physiologically what your body can handle. And there's a guy who used to fight in the UFC. He's a very nice guy, so I don't, I'm not trying to pick on him. But Jonathan Goulet uh, was, I think, a French-Canadian fighter and very, very talented one. I think that's the one that um, Dwayne Ludwig crushed in order to get the record. But he just couldn't really take a shot. Uh, there's just an issue there, not because he was not mentally tough, just physiologically. There's nothing he could really do about it. I don't necessarily think that Rockhold has like the, a, a particularly good chin, but I don't think he's got a particularly bad one either. I think it's just very average. It's fine. It's just okay. You know, it's not some terrible liability. He's got way too much experience for that to be the case. Now you can say, well, maybe all those gym wars have affected it. That's possible. That's very possible. I wouldn't rule that out. Um, I just want to say it just feels to me a little bit not merely demeaning, but just factually incorrect to say, well, he can't take a shot. Okay, he can't take the heaviest of shots, no. But is his chin so um, – is it such a liability that you question his ability to win all other factors being equal? N no, for me, no. He, that, uh, he can still win with that. And that, that's that's the way I look at it. He's like, you know, could a team win with a Kirk Cousins-level quarterback? Yeah, you should be. I mean, if the Ravens can win with Trent Dolfer, you know, you should be able to win with that. Is that the best quarterback I've ever seen for Trent Dolfer? No. Is Kirk Cousins top 10? Hovering just outside. But that's enough to win a Super Bowl, right? It's, it's the way I look at it. It's like not the most amazing one I've ever seen. Far and away, no. Um, but it's not so bad that that is like, well, it's just going to collapse at any time and, and everything will come crumbling down with it. I, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Um, Floyd Mayweather versus CM Punk. That's the right fight to make, according to Rogan and Schaub. Yeah, well, not according to Luke. <laughs> That's a fight that should never get made, according to Luke. Um, someone says... Speaking of Rockhold versus Gustafson, it's not the fight to make. Gus needs to fight. Um, Gus next needs to fight for the belt. Yeah, it's just, I, I think Gustafson is just out there trying to get a fight. And now this stirring up this conversation. And I know Rockhold's like, I want to fight Verdum. Doesn't seem like a great idea at this point. I think we can all agree. It's just those guys are going to be a little bit bigger. They're going to be a little bit heavier. They're going to hit a lot, hit a lot harder. And again, I don't think in and of itself, that's the reason why he's going to win or lose. 
I think some of the tactical errors and strategic errors that were a part of his last fight are way more explanatory, but it doesn't help. It doesn't help if you went up there. God, the CM Punk thing with Mayweather. I mean, you really have to ask yourself how much we've lost the plot that this is what we're discussing in 2018. You know, how far off the path are we at this point? Or this is like a real conversation we're happening. I mean, this is Japanese MMA at its peak. And that's not a good thing because you know what happened after the peak, right? The, these weird circus show attractions, they lose value. And with them, they unplug the drain on fandom generally, right? If you go in the direction of that and then you get tired of that, um, there's nothing left to sustain it. This is what I mean about like sustaining architecture everyone wants to just do away with now because there are there are some aspects of it that are boring but they're boring because there's just too much of it to maintain properly in part and in part because it's core cyclical but let me tell you something man that's what you're discussing in 2018 should cm punk fight floyd mayweather in the ufc <clears throat> you are so far off the all of us are so far off the reservation at this point what, what, what a i mean It'd be funny were it not so tragic. You guys drink by? I love by. I got my Kula watermelon. What the fuck that means? Mm. All right. Good question here. Why is Tyron Woodley being so Woodley-esque at the moment? Did you see his Twitter exchange with Dan Hardy, of all people? I did. I follow both of them on Twitter. So I saw it. You know, this is an interesting conversation. I wanted to lead with it in terms of, like, the topics I listed at the top of the, of the post because I've been thinking about it a lot. <clears throat> did you guys hear Tyron on uh, Ariel's show? I listened to the whole interview. All right, so what do you want to make of it? Here's what I would make of it. Um... I don't think Tyron Woodley is wrong. Now, there's a big however coming. So hear me out for a second. Just give me a moment. If you listen to his arguments, I, I find them very, very compelling. Like, I've said this before on Twitter. Have you ever watched Tyron Woodley on that desk for UFC on Fox events or, you know, just FS1 events? He, he might be their best analyst. He is excellent. He is really, really good. Really good. He's got good broadcasting skills. He makes eye contact with the right cameras at the right time. Believe me, that's actually not a small thing. He understands when it's his time to go. He speaks parsimoniously. He brings an interesting knowledge. He brings in a historical perspective of the game. Um, he always had, look, had, looks presentable. And all those guys do to some extent, uh, of course. But I just mean, like, if you're looking at the boxes of analysis and what you want out of a guy, he's got it all. So you would say to yourself, well, okay, maybe he's only good at that and he's not good at assessing himself. But I don't think that's true either. I think he is pretty right about some of the ways in which there's a disparity in which we've been treated. And if we're going to play certain games with matchmaking, why am I all of a sudden exempt? And I am a guy who has you know, tried to do um, a lot to promote himself and um, you know, that should be recognized more. And yes, it's true. Also, oh, let me save this point. You know, everyone's saying I'm a boring fighter. You know, I had the fastest welterweight championship title win in, in UFC history, which is true. Um, it's a lot of arguments that are th these sort of grievances in his mind that won't go away. 
But I don't think the substance of his arguments are bad. I really don't. He's got a lot of good points. Here's the problem, though, with it all. It's not that he's not right. It's that at some point, people begin to be fatigued by it all. Now, he's clearly not fatigued. I think he feels in some ways he's been wronged, not really by what Dana White said, but you know, it seems to be a series of things in terms of his treatment. And by the way, I, he didn't really bring it up, but like his colleagues at Fox threw him under the bus. You know, they had Dana White on. He said all those terrible things about him, and no one stuck up for him. I mean, I'm not expecting them to, like, you know, backhand Dana White on air. I mean, I realize he was virtual, but, you know, metaphorically speaking, I'm not expecting that. But they all laughed. You know what I mean? Like, he has a – yeah, I'd be pissed too. You would be pissed. Someone airs you out on TV like that. You'd be pissed. Um, But the reality is the amount – like, he has made his grievances known. And it's not like they've ever been accepted. They've been rejected at every step of the way. No one's ever, uh, maybe the media has been sympathetic, but in terms of the fan base, they've rejected it at every step of the way. And so uh, it's not like this is new in that sense. But what's different to me now is that uh, I'm not saying the guy can't or shouldn't defend himself. But what I am saying is the amount of grievance airing, while I think legitimate uh, to, to a very significant extent, has gone on so long that while his arguments are effective to those who really want to hear them, there has been so much of it in volume that it's actually changing the historical record of truth about him. Here's what I mean. People are saying, oh, Tyron Woodley is a boring fighter, and I'm not here to defend the Demi and Maya fight in terms of its entertainment value. As somebody who tore his labrum, I'm not a world-class athlete like Tyron Woodley, but I can tell you the fact that he did as well as he did, given that consideration, is remarkable. It's remarkable. So I don't, I'm not here. He was like, well, it's not, he was trying to defend it as saying, well, maybe it wasn't entertaining, but there's other aspects of it to appreciate, which is also true, but it's not entertaining. And this is a spectator sport. If it's something not entertaining and it's a spectator sport, you have to uh, expect some measure of blowback. So there he does have, he, uh, he has some cause there, but not nearly enough. Um, and the second Woodley fight or with um, Wonder Boy was not exciting. You know, this, this, this is clearly not true. But if you look at his record, there, those two last, and again, those two ones were not entertaining. I'm not, I'm not going to argue otherwise. But if you look at the general record he's put together, it's just not true. He's a boring fighter. It's so not true. Dong Hyun Kim win, Jay Hiron, Josh Koscheck, Carlos Condit. Um, uh, the first fight with Wonder Boy was fight of the night at 205. That was the night that McGregor did all that work. You know, you can just go on and on through his record. Now, the Kelvin Gastelum fight was not the best fight, but it was not some, you know, horrible dud either. It was a close split decision. And he had a broken foot in it and Gastelum missed weight, right? Um, there's a lot of fights you can point to that were really good, really exciting, fun. It's just not true. It's true that his last two were boring. It's not true that he's a boring fighter. I know what it's like to have witnessed a guy who fight in, fight out, didn't necessarily entertain people. John Fitch was one of those guys. Now, I have no problem with the way he fought, but let me tell you something. It's the way Tyron Woodley fights and his record is a far cry from what John Fitch was doing. Um, not mad at either guy for it, but just let's be clear about it. It's just not true. He's boring. It's just not. The record does not speak to that. It speaks to a guy who is generally exciting, who has had a couple of duds. That's what it basically says. You can't ignore those duds, but those duds don't define him. Uh, but here's my point. The amount of bellyaching, publicly so, it's not, It's not. people aren't buying the arguments. I buy them, but other people are not buying them. 
And so what happens is all of this grievance airing, it's becoming his brand, right? And that's just not fair to him. I don't think in the end he's doing himself necessarily at this point the kind of justice that he needs to be doing for himself. If people are getting an altered perception of you because there's a degree of hostility about this, because of the amount and volume of grievance airing, and while I find him to be a credible um, debater about these things, maybe you guys don't. And if you don't, you just have to kind of read the room a little bit here. And so going on about it, it's just, it's I mean, less than diminishing returns. It's really, it, what does Conor McGregor do a lot that I really sort of appreciate from him? He has grievances too. Now, again, you can debate the legitimacy of those, but he has grievances in his mind. He waits until he wins and then says to the media at that moment, like at your peak, like right after you won, man, you're the king of the world, right? For the most part. Again, after Tyron Woodley be Demi and Maya, whatever. But right after you win, you're usually the king of the world, man. He waits until that moment to say, here's what I want next. I believe I've earned it. There you go. And so it's a more, it's, he ties it to achievement like quite directly, quite directly. That's a smart thing to do. Like, this is what I mean. Like, Conor McGregor has a real smart way of applying it. So to me, it's like when, when Tyron Woodley speaks about his grievances, I don't really find them to be bad arguments. I find them very effective. But maybe a lot of you guys clearly don't. And if you just keep doing that, people are going to begin to look at you in ways that you're not. Um, he does fight number one contenders. He's not a boring fighter. And I don't want him to be perceived that way, but you keep doing that, and that's exactly what's going to happen. And lastly, I know folks are going to reject this, but I'm sorry. For a rich, successful black athlete, there's going to be a million of you guys out there. Not all of you. In fact, not many of you won't feel this way. But some of you out there, you can deny it all you want. It, 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 there's a complete double standard about it. it. It's just the way it goes. So uh, he's also up against that. But I, I think he could probably minimize some of those considerations. If he just said to himself, okay, look, I've made it known what my issues are, um, and I'm not going to take this stuff lying down. But at some point, if I really want to change perception, because here's the deal. If you don't mind being hated, like you truly don't mind being hated, then just keep saying whatever you want to say. Right? Just keep doing that. And maybe that maybe that's what he wants. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know what Tyron Woodley ultimately wants for himself. But there's a part of me who feels like he wants to be celebrated. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Why would why would a UFC champion not want to be celebrated? Why would a guy who's a pillar of his community not want to be celebrated? Why would a guy who has taken care of his family financially why would he not want to be celebrated? He's, he's entitled to feel that way. All all UFC champions who have done something like that they they all deserve that. Um, and it's not coming necessarily from the fan base in the way that you would expect. And so as a consequence, I think he feels I, I don't know. It seems like a little frustrated from the outside looking in. But if you really want to get on their good side, you've made the arguments known. At this point, no one's going to be more inclined to buy them now than they ever were. Uh, and again, part of that could just be the fact that you've got a fan base who's not receptive to this kind of thing for a lot of reasons that people either both want to admit or don't want to admit. But now the question is to just pivot away from that. Like, let's move into a different territory. Go get another fight when you're healthy. Put it on that guy, and you can begin to change the narrative. And then at that day, after you stuck it to whoever you take next, whether it's Colby Covington, whether it's RDA, then say, I believe I've earned it. I have fought all the number one contenders. This is what I want. I'm entitled to it, and I believe I've earned it. And I bet that that might end up being a little bit more effective because I don't think Tyron Woodley is wrong, but that whether his messaging is effective, totally separate matter, right? In the words of Frank Luntz, it's not what you say, it's what people hear.
Isso. So, uh, okay, here we go. How good is Jimmy Smith? Uh, Jimmy did a great job calling UFC 221. The Annick Smith combo is the best one yet, in my opinion. I think this gives Joe Rogan the opportunity to step aside now, as he seems to have other interests and has campaigned hard for the UFC to bring Jimmy on. This has to be the UFC's biggest win in the recent UFC Bellator free agent wars. Maybe Eddie Alvarez, but I think Smith will have a bigger impact on the overall product. Your thoughts. I was thinking about this the other night. Dude, what? <laughs> now, now, maybe he was asking for the world. I don't know. What could he have possibly been asking for that they couldn't meet? I mean, what a insane mistake by Bellator. Again, now maybe if he was asking for like, I want a million dollars a show. Well, okay, you're not going to get that, you know. Um, but I don't get it. He was phenomenal on Saturday night. Him and Anik, or he and Anik sounded great. And I thought they had, they were a pair that appeared to, even though that was the first combination together as a commentary duo, sounded like they'd been doing it for years. You know, excellent, totally excellent. Um, I thought to myself, what was Bellator thinking letting him go? I like Big John McCarthy, but so far it is not too clear to me that that's either been an upgrade or even a lateral move. That so far has been a, a downgrade to me. Um, now, again, I think Big John McCarthy deserves the opportunity to get his feet wet and really grow into that role. And so I think I, I'm not really ready to issue a report card. But as it stands, uh, McCarthy has some work to do. And as it stands, <laughs> Jimmy Smith hasn't missed a beat nothing also what i really appreciated about it although jimmy this what this knuckle sandwich is for you for saying you like the wooing which i don't even believe that's true i think he was just humoring the donks um i was glad that he did this on a ufc broadcast and that you didn't see a whole lot of him remember you see them do the stand-up for 30 seconds to a minute or something you, you don't see them very often through the course of a broadcast you hear them for the majority of that seven hours to me, this should put to bed, and I'm so glad that I didn't see a lot of this, and, I, and I, I don't think it's coincidental, this idea that, well, he's just another Joe Rogan. You have to be, wow, wow, you have to have some seriously uh, poor discerning skills uh, to say that after you hear Rogan and Smith commentate. They could not have more different styles if they tried. Now, I'm not here to say one's better than the others. They think they each do different things. I think Joe weaves these narratives and these tales, and he's got a really good ability to match excitement to what's happening in the octagon. Uh, and Jimmy does two on the ladder, but I think Joe's got a particularly strong strength or a particular strength in that regard. But Jimmy is, uh, he speaks parsimoniously. He, he clearly does a ton of research about footage. He really gets in there and gives nitty gritty details, and he speaks in these short, choppy bursts. They're not the same at all and of course to anybody who appreciates that fact i'm not stating anything new but you heard so many things when he was over belt or he's just cheap joe rogan no no he's really not he's really not that's not true even a little bit and it never was true and you didn't hear a lot of complaints about that on saturday because it finally dawned on the people who were saying that that he sounds nothing like him neither in auditory uh, complexion nor in delivery uh or or anything else really uh, other than they're both bald. 
okay, they're both bald. I, I will give you, I will, I will concede. Fine. But that's about it, really. And I was so glad that that happened. He is an excellent commentator. What a pickup for the UFC. He's doing UFC Austin uh, this weekend, which is he's a maniac, apparently. Uh, although Arwin and Bellator really, wow, what a botch that was. Their broadcast just got old. You know, they had Sean Grande and they had Jimmy Smith and before that, of course, Sean Wheelock. But the more, more recent iteration was were, were those two. And then it was Goldie and Morrow and Sean and jo Jimmy. Okay, that's that's fine. And now it's like, we'll see what happens with Morrow. I think he's still got this youthful exuberance. But with Goldie and Big John, it's like, it's, it's, it, they, they're dating themselves to an extent. Someone says, I'd say it's not what Bellator wouldn't give him. It is explicitly what Bellator wouldn't give him. That is a matter of fact. The Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. Hi, Luke. The Bellator Grand Prix continues this weekend. Yes, it does. Roy Nelson is fighting Matt Mitrione. Because it's a straight-line bracket, we know who could potentially fight who. On the left side, you have Chael versus the winner of Fedor versus Mir. On the right, you have, let's see, um, it's Roy and Matt and then Bader and um, King Mo, right? With the winner of these two contests fighting each other for a place in the final against whoever comes through the left side. Who do you like in each of these fights? Who's going to win the semifinals? And then who do you have winning the overall tournament? Okay, so let's see. On the left, Chael's won. I'm going to say that Fedor's going to beat Mir. I don't know why I'm saying that, but I'm just going to say that. And then I think Chael beats Fedor. So Chael goes to the final on one side. Because if it's Chael versus Mir, I like Mir. On the other side, let's see. I'm going to say Bader beats Mo. Please don't kill me, Mo. Then I'm going to say... Um, wins on Friday. I'll say... I'll say Nelson wins on Friday. So then it's going to be Bader versus Nelson. I'll take Bader. And then it'll be Bader versus Chael, and I'll take Bader. So I'm going to say Ryan Bader wins the whole thing. Uh, okay. Luke's perfect Valentine's Day dinner meal. Oh, God, this ought to be good. Uh, Luke goes to the restaurant with his wife. They order, and then the waiter brings out two well-done steaks with French <laughs> French's yellow mustard and A1 sauce. Here, we'll make it up to you, says the waiter, seeing the look of rage on Luke's face. The waiter brings out two national brand IPAs. Yeah, I would I would walk out at that point. God, what a horrible thing to do. What are you guys going to do? What's your, what's, what's your go-to for Valentine's Day meal? Do you go out or do you cook? I've done both. I think at this point in my life, I prefer the going out. The cooking is fine if you've got like a really good meal you can make and it's still like early in a relationship, like the first two or three years, you know? Oh, it's Valentine's Day. I'm going to, you know, mine is this is my favorite meal and to eat and both to make. Steak with chimichurri. Oh, I'm going to make that, right? But then the, the, when your wife's had that a few times, you're like, what are you going to do? Are you going to cook something else? But then you got to practice if you want to get it right. It's a lot of work, man. You got to go buy a bunch of stuff. You got to wait in line. If you want something nice, you got to go to Whole Foods. It's expensive. Just go out. All right. Welterweight division. Well, given the welterweight champ has been on the shelf since July, late July, but July, are you surprised at how little fights there are planned in that division at the moment? Currently, none of the top 10 have a fight scheduled. 
This has recently happened with lightweight as well. Do you expect a few fights to be arranged once Woodley's next fights? I don't think it's at all a coincidence. Uh, someone asked on the, on the beat last week. I didn't really have a good answer because I had never really considered it, but I've been thinking about it more. Should we get rid of rankings? I'm not opposed to that. I, I, I think there's some extra debate that needs to happen, but there, there, it's to, it is not coincidental that there are a few fights booked for people in the top 10. These are the guys most likely to reject first or second fight offers. That's just how it's going to go. Champion doesn't want to fight that guy. Number one contender doesn't want to fight that guy. Top five doesn't want to fight top 10. Top 10 doesn't want to fight a guy outside of the top 10 at all. And there's this constant rejection of it. Now, at some point, they have to give in. At some point, you got to make a fight. Uh, at some point, you got to get paid. But to me, it's not you can blame that one on the UFC, and I'm sure there is some blame to go around. But you're talking about that space in every weight class of the guys who, under the current system, and the current incentive structures that exist have by far the greatest willingness to say no. And I think you're seeing the consequence of that in part anyway. Uh, let's see. Fighters like Wonderboy, Till, Usman, Covington, Maya, Magni, Ponzinibbio, and Masvidal should all be getting paired up in order to build potential contenders for the belt. And the UFC seem to be slow at arranging this. I bet it's not for a lack of effort. You even heard Tyron Woodley say they offered him somebody who wouldn't say his name, which tells me it was probably Colby Covington. And he was like, no. It's, it, it, they're, they're offering people fights. They're just saying no. right? And you can say, well, offer them the fights they want. Okay, but that's not so obvious. Like You have to offer the fights that you can, based on who's available, the fights that make sense if you can make it work for the local uh, territory you're heading to. Um, ones that interest both parties, this is not so easy. This is not so easy. Besides, in any scenario, you're going to have one who's going to be higher than the other if they're inside the top ten. No one's going to be ranked two sevens. right? So someone's going to have to take a, take a, a risk here, and they don't want to do that. So this is a problem. This is a major problem. For some reason, your boy is thirsty today. And I don't mean for Instagram models. Um... I am struggling to understand in an era which has main events struggling for headliners why the UFC aren't making use of two of its most talented, prosperous divisions. Okay, here's something that I've been racking my brains about in addition to the answer I already gave you. So Cowboy lost to Till in October. Cowboy's fighting this weekend, coming off of a loss. Now, I realize that Cowboy likes to be a little bit busier than the average fighter. Fair. It. I, I've said this before. <laughs> it's it's not that I don't want to see Darren Till or that I'm somehow criticizing him. I'm not. I want to see Darren Till. I want to see more of him. How is it possible that Cowboy has a return fight quicker than Till who needs to be building off the momentum from the Cowboy win? Like if Cowboy goes and get like, let's say, beats the brakes off Yancey Medeiros, I'm not saying he will. Let's just say he does. Like you restore some of the credibility that was lost with that win, right? In the same way that Eddie Alvarez loses to Conor McGregor, but eventually finds his way back, uh, beats Justin Gaethje, and now he's, you know, not on top of the division, but you wash that bad taste. His stock rose again after it had dropped. Like, you're not building off of what it meant to de to depreciate that guy's stock in the same way anymore. And then, God help, if you get a fight and then you lose or he gets injured or something. Like, I don't, it, it's just crazy to me. Well, he wants to fight the Wonder Boy or he wants to fight, you know, Nelson, all oh, his camp doesn't want it. Oh, it's not the right time. Man, get out there and fight. 
you know, Jeremy Stevens's approach can be criticized for its simplicity, but he can also be complimented for the beauty of its simplicity. Everyone asking for money fights and for the right kind of matchup, man, just get out there and fight. Thank you, Jeremy Stevens. Salute to you, sir. Thank you for speaking on behalf of the consumer here. And I realize that's not what he's doing. He's speaking on behalf of himself. But that the two are intertwined. We have so many guys who are going to wait. It's going to be just right. i got to figure it out. I mean, get out there and compete. Uh, get out there and compete. This is why the sport is in a little bit of a struggle scenario today. Because you have all the top ten guys who don't want to take a fight that's not perfect for them. They're, they're not out there really trying to put it on the line in the same way they were before. And there's nothing more the UFC can do to do about it other than to, you know, deprive them or overfeed them, uh, whatever strategy works in the moment, depending on the scenario. And now you've got a case where a guy coming off of a loss is getting a rebound fight quicker than the guy who got the win and depreciated his stock. And now your stock might rise again if you. It's like, dude, they are. They have whoever is advising him. Unless, and I realize that partly the injury is is playing a role here, but. Short of that, like whatever advising he's been given about, you know, we'll, we'll wait till down the line and then down the line. Bad advice. Bad advice. Let's see here. Let's see. Uh, okay. Yoel Romero IQ. Hi, Luke. One thing you often say about Yoel Romero is that during his wrestling career, he had a low wrestling IQ and often made mistakes in the moment. That's perhaps what stopped him from getting a gold medal. Well, not exactly. The gold medal thing is a little bit dicier. But, yes, that's not merely my opinion. That is – someone told that to me once, an esteemed scholar of uh, international wrestling, and then showed me a few examples of it, and I was like, oof. Uh, but the opposite is true for his fight career where he displays a high fight IQ example – of this is his greatest defense if you were previously mentioned. So my question is, what are your thoughts on why this fight is so high while his wrestling IQ was not? Well, um, by the way, let me read this because this comment also turned green, and this is this is what I was alluding to. Freestyle, this is not my this is someone else writing this. Freestyle wrestling has a poorly kept secret. Many top tournaments, worlds, Olympics, etc. Cuban wrestlers have historically been paid off to lose by foreign federations. The conditions they live in are crappy. Um and the five to six figure payments offered ultimately are seen as more valuable to many of these athletes than winning gold. Though I don't know any concrete proof that you all uh, took a pay dive or two, it stands to reason that him not winning gold may have been decided off of that. Um, yes, there you need to take that into consideration in any time you see like a Cuban silver or bronze medalist or something, right? Uh, okay, now that didn't apply to uh, who is it, Mihain? I ain't just racking up gold medals uh, in Greco, but neither here nor there. So it's interesting you comment about his uh, fight IQ. I certainly would not say that it's low in MMA. Um, I would not say that. When I say it's low in amateur wrestling, you know, we're talking about a relative scale, low relative to like the best IQ you could see on the map. Um, but in, in MMA, I think it's a bit of a different consideration, right? It, I think his IQ is fine for MMA. But the bigger takeaway for me when I watched him fight Rockhold is he's finally figuring out how to fight according to his own strengths. And in a sense, Rockhold aided and abetted that. So it really put it on strong display. But the point is, nevertheless, I think um, a salient one, he understands how he wants to strike better, what kind of strikes he wants to throw, what scenarios have to be established in order for him to throw it. 
that he has minimal or not minimal, but he has a finite amount, probably perhaps a smaller amount of um, energy in which to use in any kind of one of these contests and that he has to be careful about how he manages it. And he just has a clear sense of self. I would expect that out of a high-level athlete who's 40 years old. To me, it's less of an issue of does he make great decisions. He makes some good ones, but he makes some unusual ones too where you're just not striking and you're blocking constantly. That's an unusual one, right? That's not – in fact, some might call that, according to traditional measurements, poor uh, IQ. But the, the, bigger, the bigger takeaway is what does it mean when a guy understands his strengths and his limitations and competes according to that? That's obviously a smart decision, but it's, it's overlapping but slightly different from fight IQ, which can also encompass how do you react uh, and what kind of decisions do you make in unfamiliar territory or under pressure or um, with an opponent who presents some kind of a game plan switch um, round over round. So it's it's more like on-the-job testing versus a keen self-awareness. Both are critically important. And again, it's like a Venn diagram. They're going to partly overlap, but they don't entirely overlap. So um, to be clear, I don't think – I think his fight IQ is fine, if not good, for MMA. And the bigger consideration is self-awareness. That's less about overall wrestling choices that he might have made. And again, you go back and you watch some of those wrestling matches. Why did he make some of those poor choices? you'd have to go back and sort of think about some of the bigger circumstances at play. Apparently there are some visa issues with Till. All right. They couldn't put him on the London card against somebody, somebody. I mean, how is he not competing period? It just drives me crazy. Drives me absolutely crazy. Zabit, according to Zabit, Arnold Allen, Yair Rodriguez, Miles Jury, and Andre Feely have all turned down fights with him. Why do you think this is? Because four of us know who he is. Uh, uh, no, excuse me. Six or seven of us know who he is. The names mentioned there all know it. They probably don't like their chances against him, and even if they do, they don't like the upside. Zabit is in a weird spot where all, only the insiders know who he is, and he's so talented that no one wants to take a fight against him. That's a tough spot to be in. It's a really tough spot to be in. Eventually, he'll get one here. But, uh, you know, in this new UFC where everyone is, well, I like that fight for me. I don't like that fight for me. And, and again, I think we can all appreciate that on some level. Uh, he's in a really bad spot. He offers very little upside of a win other than, you know, maybe I will give that person credit on a podcast. That's not really helpful to someone like Miles Jury. But so someone will, someone will, you know, make the call. Do you know what's next for Chris Weidman? I don't. Him versus Jacare sounds good. Um, but um, all the problem at middleweight now is you've got Jacare, Romero, Gastelum, and Weidman. They've all got one win since since a loss. So it creates this weird space. I don't want to see Jacare Romero too. Like I'd be okay with like a four man tourney. You know, you could do uh, Jacare versus Weidman, and you could do Gastelum versus Romero. Those are interesting fights, you know. Um, and then let those guys fight it out, right? Winner that gets a title shot, or you can just get. I'd be okay with Romero getting a title shot. I know some of you would not. It's fine. I think you can have a debate about it. Um, but that's the issue at middleweight now is that all those guys at the top, they're good. They're really good. But they, they have these blemished, recently blemished records. 
Uh, John Jones, do you believe John Jones is manager when he says he has 95% chance to fight this year? I think it's kind of laughable. What say you? Well, I don't know what to make of it, man. <laughs> I don't. That's why I wanted to have him on because you listen to Nowitzki's and all his public statements and they can say whatever they want about him calling it down the middle. Nothing about that was calling it down the middle. Um, so that takes your uh, or grabs your attention. Then you hear this from from Malky Kawa and you say, man, you're starting to get this sort of like composite sketch here of people who are more in the know than the rest of us, and they seem to have a high degree, high degree of confidence. Um, that's one explanation, that whatever they know about all this, that they're excited about what it means. Okay, that's one explanation. Another explanation could be, you know, John Jones can shadow box in his garage all he wants. Malky Kawa can say, you know, he's got a 95% chance all he wants. Jeff Nowitzki can think, you know, um, that these arguments uh, around uh, use are uh, implausible. All those things can be true, and then you you sort of decides go after yourself. We don't care about these explanations. Pound sand. We haven't heard enough of the evidence from John's team to really effectively judge the merits of the case. You know, the lie detector thing, I don't think is in any way interesting, but Malky's point was we're not doing just one thing as a general, again, as a general um, we're trying to introduce as many factors as we can to create a certain image. Okay. Um, but I don't know what to make of it. It's the same situation as last time. I kind of want to hear what USADA has to say about it. And I don't know. I really, I honest to God don't know. I find it very interesting that so many around him have a high degree of confidence about him being exonerated or having the punishment being relatively mild. That definitely is interesting, but are they just, is it just, asserting overconfidence as a PR strategy? Maybe. Is it asserting confidence because they know something we don't? I guess we'll find out. But here's what I do know. I just find the four-year argument. I just don't buy it. I really, really don't buy it. And I, I, I don't know why I don't buy it, but something about it just feels totally off. Even two seems a little strange, but I guess we'll see. It's bizarre, though, isn't it? <clears throat> Poirier versus Gaethje. Will this fight be the fight of the year or at the very least a candidate? Hard to imagine it wouldn't be. Uh, I see this fight playing out and who do you see emerging victorious? Probably Gaethje if Poirier doesn't land a huge shot or if the... Here's the issue with Gaethje. I think Gaethje's going to beat most lightweights. Um, but the question is when he accumulates enough damage to affect his future ability to sustain any further damage the wheels are going to come off that bus quick. And, you know, he's been in a war with Johnson and he was in a war with uh, Eddie. And then before that, you know, the Palomino and everyone else he fought, it wasn't like he was, you know, these were cakewalks all the time. So the question is, when is that going to fall through? If that doesn't fall through, I like, I like Gitchy's chances. If that has been compromised in any way, Poirier hits hard enough and can work behind the jab enough to really stick it to him. So, so that's going to be the big, the big issue there. Let's see this. Bump, bada, bump, bump. Brown versus Condit. When this fight was announced, I was favoring Condit. Uh, now, after hearing Brown on the JRE, I am favoring Brown. Thoughts on the fight and where the both fighters are at? I thought, like I said before, I didn't think Carlos Condit looked bad at UFC, whatever it was, 218? Can't remember now which one it was. 219, something like that. 219, whatever. I didn't think he looked bad against Magny. 
but I thought he had clearly left a piece of himself. Now there's a question to be asked about whether he can not get that back. I don't think he can get that back, but that the ring rust was not conducive to his style, that he needs this constant repetition and that he can look different a second time. Um, also that, you know, what Matt Brown is still susceptible to, to body attacks. It appears that's something that hasn't gone away. So the question is, who do you favor? I favor Brown. If the same condit shows up again, if, a, if, if a rejuvenated condit shows up, then that changes the picture pretty substantially because the condit before was not shop worn, but not active as, as he needed to be. And kind of let the fight take get away from himself. And if Brown wants to take him to the ground, I think he can too. Brown's surprisingly well-rounded. Um, not surprisingly, but I don't think he gets enough credit for how, how, how well-rounded he actually is. And um, so I would say it's Brown's fight to lose. A fight he could lose, but Brown's fight to lose. But hey, man, you know, I'm not putting any money on it. Let's be clear about that. Let's see here. They call in me. All right. Stipe's ground game. Luke, I know you covered some of this on your Monday morning analyst after UFC 220, but how much do you think Stipe lacks of submission attempts, or Stipe's lack, excuse me, of submission attempts against Nganu might hold him back against DC? Done. It looked like Stipe had a real lack of ideas or ability against a practically done grounded fighter. DC manages to take Stipe down. He only has one option, which is to try and stand up. Do you think DC will be able to take Stipe down? Yes. I assume that will be his great game plan given the height disparity. If so, do you think he would prefer uh, to be able to return to the feet? Probably. And he probably could. Um, I, I think if you look at Stipe, he is good at pressuring. And you could say, well, the Verdum fight, he was good at being pressured. Verdum's pressuring was not very effective pressuring. Uh, and you could say, well, the Struve fight is ancient history. And to a to a significant degree, that's true. However, I think the best way to um, get at Stipe is to effectively disrupt him, which easier said than done. But Cormier can probably do that. Getting inside of his reach, clinching with him, making him work to stop takedowns. Um, if he can at all get him to his feet, banging on him, and just sort of sticking to him like glue, I think that would be a real big problem for him. You just try to slug it out at range. With Stipe, it's not going to go your way. You know, He's just too heavy-handed, too slick. Um, so, yeah, but I think Cormier is definitely going to get some takedowns. I think Stipe is definitely going to get back up. But how often, what that balance is going to be, that's where, where it gets kind of interesting, right? Um, but, yes, I don't think there's a heavyweight in the world Cormier can't take down. Can he keep them down? Can he take them down multiple times? Different debate. In the course of a three- or a five-round fight, is there a single heavyweight, Cain Velasquez included, that Daniel Cormier can't take down? For me, the answer is no. He can take them down. He can take all of them down. Honor officially out of the fight matrix rankings. Hi, Luke. Hi. Uh, do you think McGregor is likely to suffer from some ring rust, or at least in terms of grappling? He's been out of MMA for 450 days now. I suspect if UFC is in any way concerned with his long-term prospects as a draw, they should not put him in there with a wrestler uh, on his first fight back. They should put him in there with whoever the number one effing guy is. And not and not anybody else. Strip him, give him a tune-up showcase fight. Now that's different, I suppose. Um, 
Well, let me think about that, actually. Hold on. If you strip him, who do you give him then? Huh. God, I just, I just keep, I, I was operating under the premise on autopilot that they wouldn't strip him. Hmm. That's not a bad idea, actually. But I mean, the, the MMA fans and media, too, would lose their minds. Hmm. That's interesting. I have to think about that. And then throw him in there after the showcase fight with the winner of Habib versus Tony, assuming, of course, he sticks around that long. So that's sort of the issue there. It's like, if you did that, would he really stick around long enough to fight those guys? Hard to say exactly. Um, so I'm of two minds on ring rust. As I mentioned before, it doesn't affect everybody all the time, but it affects most fighters most of the time. Well, that's, that's my rule about it. And the way in which it can affect them can differ fight to fight too. This is so distracting. So here's my normal finger. You see that? Normal finger. I pulled a hangnail. Look at this thing. <laughs> it's all swollen. All disgusting. I'm ready to pop it and have pus just like, ksh, but apparently that's bad. Anyway, it's all distracting. Look how swollen the pad is. Gross, right? Um, in any case, uh, to me, the time off, I don't know how it wouldn't affect him. On the other hand, he's like one of these guys. He's like a Kyle Dake that when the pressure's on and the lights are on, like whatever deficiencies he has, they don't go away. You're still an imperfect fighter, but many of them go away. He really just elevates to a to a new person when those lights are on and he's out there being asked to do the impossible. That's when you really get your best. And so uh, it, it is it is true that it, both of those things can be working, that his best is still going to be a function of some kind of ring rust, but it would be minimized by the fact that this competitive opportunity brings out the best in him. So that's an interesting one about stripping him and then giving him a tune-up fight. I have to think about that. You could only do that if you knew, and again, you can't guarantee this kind of thing, if you knew he was going to face the winner after that. Um, and, you know, would they waste a headlining opportunity with him? You know, because Conor McGregor comes back, and he's going to be fighting, you know, some guy off the street or something. I don't think promotionally that would work, but it's an interesting idea. Um, Peter Yan, I don't pay much attention to that. Uh, according to a report from MMA Kings, I don't know what that is. Maribek Tyson visa might not be going through in time for UFC 223. I've talked about his visa situation. He really couldn't go into details to explain to me exactly what was holding him up and that UFC lawyers were trying to help him. And why is it so hard for Russian fighters to get visas to fight? Is it their Chechen nationality? Is it, uh, or, you know, Chechen uh, identity? Is it their Russian nationality? Is it, um, is it their known associations with Kadyrov that to the extent that some of them have them? I don't know. I don't know. But it's, pro it's a problem. Remember, the first one was um, um, Frodo Hospolayev over in Bellator. We just couldn't get a visa. And then Bellator had to release. He was like my favorite Bellator fighter back in the Rebney era. And then he just couldn't get a visa. And that was that. Um, let's see. Who are false predictions? All right, I'll do these and we'll do the Twitter. You know what? Well, it's 2.15. Let me go to the Twitter machine and then we'll come back and do these predictions. All right. You can shoot me a tweet at LThomasNews and I will check those out and then we can answer these questions. Uh, what does the UFC do with Megan Anderson if Cyborg were to retire? Cutter. Cut the whole division. 
Uh, Luke, you seem to have two different hairstyles on your head. Top half venture capitalist, bottom half deep sea fisherman. Is this on purpose and or representative? I'll just say sure. It's a funny thing. Uh, let's see. Hilarious. Bottom half deep sea fisherman. That's great. What is your opinion on the potential GSP versus Nate super fight being discussed? Ain't nothing super fight about it. I personally don't see any appeal to the one-sided beatdown that would be. It seems that fights are slowly moving towards the storyline rather than the actual fight. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, um, I, don't understand what's, I, I don't understand what's happening here. Did you guys not see GSP versus Diaz? Do you want to see a worse version of that? I don't. What 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 on earth could be the appeal? That fight sucked, sucked, sucked a lot. Not like a little, sucked a lot. It was a, a lot of sucking going on. That fight was terrible, terrible in every way. The buildup was great. So if what you care about are great buildups and then god-awful fights, by all means, step on the gas. But I know how this movie ends, and it ain't with fist pumping and donkey kicking. Hard pass on GSP versus Nate. Hard pass. Let's see. For the UFC making a lot of choices, um, is there... Is there a point in terms of their business changes to basically accommodate the debt load that they can't come back from? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. You put in enough of these changes and you, you, you lose what you have left. Yeah, of course. Now, what that tipping point is, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but uh, we're headed much more in that direction than the other one. Let's be very clear about that. Let's see. This is a bit of an inside comment. Uh, would you rather listen to Justin Timberlake's new album, which, by the way, no one's listening to because he's a fraud, like I've been saying, uh, or get a second opportunity to have a lap dance from that burrito-eating stripper you mentioned yesterday? I'm not going to retell the story. Suffice to say, I mentioned a story on the air on my radio show yesterday about a horrible strip club I went to one time. God, what was this, like 10 years ago? More than that, even? No, this was like... This was 13 years ago. I went to a strip club and it shut down. Sweet, merciful Jesus. And it was so horrible. I mean, horrible that the long and short of it is this lady, you know, was asking all the dudes who were not in front of the stage. They wanted a lap dance. She was actually eating a Taco Bell <laughs> burrito when she asked. And I was like, I almost vomited in her face like projectile almost on purpose. Anyway, the answer is no. I would rather listen to Justin Timberlake's album because that was a traumatic experience. Listening to Justin would be uh, sucky, but I don't know. I think I wouldn't think it would be traumatic. Scale of one to ten. <laughs> what are these questions? On a scale of one to Timberlake, should be more like Timberlake to ten, but okay. How annoying and uncomfortable was the cuddling and kissing from Romero to Rockhold after the fight? I know Romero's heart is in the right place, but the referee and doctors needed to step in and give Rockhold some space. Yeah, here's my rule about that. Rockhold's corner failed him a little bit here. And I like all those guys. I'm not saying it's the worst failure in the world. And it's, you know, it's hard to know what to do. And in part, if they can't get in, 
that also affects it. So maybe it's not entirely their fault. But here's my point. If Rockhold pushes Romero away, it's like, get out of my face. Number one, he's entitled to do that. I think if you lose a fight, hell, even if you win, you're entitled to not have your opponent in your face. You're entitled to say no to that. But if he does it, he's going to look like a dick. Everyone's going to be like, oh, there's Luke Rockhold being a dick again. Well, I mean, he has a right to be, right? Get out of my face. Right? You're in the Marine Corps. Your drone instructor calls you over. They go like this. They go, one arm's distance at all times, recruit. They say that in your – I mean, that's how it should be. One arm's distance at all times. Um, yeah, so if his corner is in the octagon, they should be able to separate him. And if there's ringside physicians and doctors, they should be separating him. He should be able to enter that one arm's distance – only on his own uh, approval of it. And so I understand Romero's heart was in the right place. I'm not like super mad at Romero or something. I'm just saying, you know, Rockhold got wrong there a little bit. I, I, I completely side with him. I don't know about what scale I would give that in terms of Timberlake to 10, but probably closer to Timberlake. Uh, let's see. I can't believe how much of part of this goddamn live chat I've spent talking about that zilch, but okay. In this new era of money matchmaking, sort of, and fighter management, what can the UFC do to ensure prospects like Zabit, Till, and Adesanya aren't avoided? Find willing competitors? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Extra money, something. Threats of cutting? I, don't, I really don't know. Uh, get rid of rankings seems to be like the, the best choice, but whatever. Let's see. Um seems that MMA commentators and analysts are discounting Tony Ferguson's chances against Habib, or at the very least, not giving as much attention as Habib is getting. Why do you think that is, and are they wrong to do so? I think, one, some generally, excuse me, genuinely believe that Habib, Habib is going to beat him. And two, Habib did that damaging stuff to Edson more recently than uh, Kevin Lee losing to Tony. And, of course, Kevin Lee losing, he had staff, and, you know, and then Tony looked bad. Not bad, but, you know, Kevin looked good in the first round. So it's all this recency bias. But I think counting out Tony Ferguson is a serious mistake. I'd probably like Habib to win, but I think the idea that he's going to go and just ragdoll him. He might ragdoll him at first. He won't ragdoll him forever. And I think once – and if the fight's not put away after the third, look out. Look out. Hey, Luke, when are you going to make stream available live on Twitter? I'm going to guess that's never going to happen. I could be wrong, but I'm if I had to put money on it, I would bet that never happens. Uh, let's see. Pick the matchups you would rather see. Rockhold versus Kelvin and Jacare versus Weidman. Okay. Or Jacare versus Kelvin and Rockhold versus Weidman. The I would go A, but neither of those would be terrible. I would go A though. Would you give President Trump <laughs> a 20 minute foot massage if it meant you could assemble one pay per view card this year with all the currently rostered UFC fighters available for your choosing? Yes. Yes, I would. I would do that as an American. If Cerrone loses this weekend, that would make it four losses in a row. If Medeiros starches him, how much longer would you like to see him stick around in the UFC for? If that happens where he gets really beat, 
yeah, that's that would be a major, major problem. A major problem. Um, I haven't thought about that, but not much longer is what I would say. Not not in immediate. Not in Oh my God. A Real Madrid source tells Grant Wall, like your preeminent American soccer journalist, that the club has indeed made Neymar its top target for the summer. But would PSG sell? And what could that mean for Ronaldo? You want to know my opinion? Get rid of Ronaldo, sign Neymar. I'm just saying. Uh, okay. I saw Manu uh, Ento in a corner recently, who would be your first tier of striking coaches? And how much awareness do you have of the second tier? Any coaches emerging on the scene? Yeah, there's a couple of extra ones. Um, uh, John Wood is a good, he's an all-around coach. Um, Ivan Flores, uh, Max Holloway striking coach, I think is excellent, really good. Uh, I have to think about some other ones. I got a bunch of names written down on the list, but those are two that really stand out to me. Um, and who would be my first tier? Wow, that's a crazy one. Um well, would you get coaches or would you get like elite fighters who you could put into a coaching role? Like, could you get Sai and Chai, you know, or something like that? Uh, I would, I mean, honestly, like if there were boxing, Floyd, not even senior, junior, for like Muay Thai, like Sai and Chai for, I don't know, some other striking art. I'm not sure. These, these, these questions are a little hard for me to answer. They're a little bit outside my wheelhouse. Um, someone says maybe if fighters were allowed to keep their own sponsorship money, they'd be more willing to fight guys ranked below them because they're still making money as opposed to the lopsided pay structure currently where the champ makes by far the most that might alleviate some of it. But as long as guys perceive anyone lower than them numerically to be outside of their interest, uh, I just think you're going to have a lot of problems. Let's see. Let's see. Why doesn't the UFC do themed country versus country events, USA versus Russia, Brazil? I think it would garner patriotism and do huge ratings. I doubt it would do huge ratings. And more to the point, they did. The first Penn versus um, St. Pierre fight was uh, Canada versus the USA. Dana doesn't like them, but they've done them for the Ultimate Fighters. You know, the smashes, um, things like that. They've done them before. But for overall events, Jesus Christ. Every Brazil event is Brazil versus the world. They just don't give them those labels. I think is what you're talking about. I think Dana just doesn't like it. Uh, when will the UFC most likely announce their new TV deal? I don't know, but you should be following Zach Arnold. He seems to think that Amazon is in play. Um, you can go read his arguments on his site and then uh, on his Twitter feed. Has Bellator done any true freak show fights since 149, or did they have... Oh, Jesus. It's a terrible zing. Uh, if Uriah Hall is forced up to light heavyweight because of a bad weight cut, could this actually be a blessing in disguise? Weaker division and less weight cutting could help him. Potentially. Potentially. I wonder how those guys as wrestlers might put it on him, like a big Alir Latifi, but it's an interesting question for sure. Uh, let's see. Let's see. True or false, Steve Miocic knocks out Daniel Cormier. I'm going to say false. Brock Lesnar comes back and fights John Jones. I'll say true. Cain uh, Velasquez comes back and fights Fabricio Verdun. I'll say true. Derek Lewis eventually fights Francis Ngannou. I will also say true. Speaking of which, let's go back to these true-false predictions. 
will these fighters get a shot at the belt in 2018? Let's see. Jimmy Rivera. True. Brian Ortega. That's a tough one. I'll say false. Kevin Lee. True. Colby Covington. True. Darren Till. I freaking hope, but I'll say false for now. Kelvin Gastelum at 170 or 185. I will say true. Alexander Gustafson. False. Kane Velasquez. False. Derek Lewis. False. Kat Zingano. True. Just Bleed Guy. Also true. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Couple minutes here remaining. Uh, should Bisping face criticism after his comments post UFC 221? He joked about how he, quote, loosened Luke's jaw, end quote, and so on right after the fight. Seems like an extremely unprofessional thing to say for an analyst. Uh, for most analysts, not for analysts of the fight game who are active fighters. In that context, it's well within precedent. Uh, if John Jones or other less liked fighters had made such jokes about a KO'd fighter, we would never hear the end of it. Probably. But you're asked, what you're pointing out is that there's double standards in how fighters and the fans are interact and how ultimately certain fighters are treated based on certain comments. Uh, that's true. That is true. That is a regrettable fact, but it is a fact. It's a great question here about weight cutting, but it's way too long. Let's see, let's see. Let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. What is this? All right, one more, one more. Let's do it. All these questions. All the good ones are super long. Here, fantasy matchups. Kane versus Stipe. I'll say Stipe for now. Habib versus Woodley. Ooh, Woodley. Holloway versus Cruz. Holloway. Nganu versus Lewis. I will say Nganu. Nganu versus Blades 2. I will also say Nganu. Ortega versus Dillashaw. That's an interesting one. I'll say Ortega. And then for the finale, DC versus Jones at heavyweight after if DC runs through Stipe. Probably John Jones. All right. I appreciate you lot watching. Madrid's probably going to get smoked by PSG, but I'm still going to cheer for Madrid, even though the season is in shambles. Um, please like the video and subscribe to the channel below. Plenty more coverage coming your way this weekend, of course, as there always is. Uh, MMA Beat is tomorrow. Lots of good stuff. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, oh, enjoy your uh, Valentine's Day and stay frosty.